The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. We're going to try to get through verse 21 through 25 uh, tonight, but just remembering what we were looking at this morning, let's read our passage and then we'll do a little bit of review from this morning and then dive into what we haven't done yet. Verse 15, brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet If it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgression. Still the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. If there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So this morning, our focus was we saw that God began to mention the word covenant. Uh, Paul talks about a covenant here that was made with Abraham, and he talks about how the covenant was an unchanging covenant. It was a covenant given long before the law was ever given, that Jesus being the seed of Abraham that was promised there, that Jesus would be the heir of the promises. And we see that Jesus fulfilled that, and he is now the heir of all things. And then thus, the offspring of Jesus, spiritually, those who are saved through Christ, are heirs along with him. And then when we get to verse 19 and 20, what we kind of ended on this morning was kind of a confusing little section about God being the mediator and how angels were the ones who handed the law to Moses. And again, the Bible's not specific on how that happened, of what that looked like. It would be foolish to try to dive into what maybe that was, because we just, we just do not know that. But we saw, as I read this morning, in different places in Scripture, it speaks to the fact that the angels are the ones who delivered the law there uh, to Moses. And so they were a mediator of sorts between God and between Moses, and then Moses a mediator to give the law to us, to give the law to Israel in the Old Testament. But then it says how God was the mediator giving the promise to Abraham, which makes that promise bigger, better than the law. And so this is where Paul was headed. That is where Paul was going when we get to our verses for us tonight in verse 21 and 22, and then we'll look at verse 23 through 25. Because Paul asks his second of two questions, which is kind of the same question, but the second time he asks it, And he says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Is it against the promises of God? And Paul does not wait to answer that question, 
But the very next line there, he answers it with certainly not. He answers it emphatically. No, absolutely not. That cannot happen. Paul used this same language before in chapter 2, verse 17. We, we already have studied this together, but I want to read it for you again. In chapter 2, verse 17, it says, But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? He asked that question at one time. And his answer was, absolutely not, certainly not. That cannot be. Christ cannot be a minister of sin. And so with the same enthusiasm here, Paul is saying, certainly not. The law is not against the promises of God. It cannot be against the promises of God. God gave it, and thus it is a good thing. So the question that remains then is, what is our relationship with law and faith? And we talked about it a little bit this morning, but we'll dive in more here if that was the case, if, 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 if we're wondering what our relationship was and if the purpose of the law was never to justify, that is what we see here. It was never to justify. It wasn't supposed to justify because if you look, it says, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, then truly righteousness would have been by the law. Paul's saying if, if that was an option, if there was a way for us to receive life through law, through works, through doing something, then certainly that would have happened. Certainly that would have been done. But we see that that wasn't the case. Instead, and I think this is hard for us to hear, the law was actually given to imprison us, to imprison us, to understand that there was absolutely no way out. And it's interesting because when you read the Old Testament, the Jewish people felt very special for having the law. They were the chosen ones, and the law was very sacred, and it was something that they held up, but they, they almost held it up in a way that made them seem to elevate themselves above everybody else. You know, that, that they had this special revelation or something that they, but in fact, what the law was supposed to do for them was to imprison them, for them to see that there was absolutely no way out for their sin. No way out of their sin. And, for, and so when we look at the law still today, and again, we mentioned this a little this morning, I don't want to keep repeating myself, but the law buries us. It completely buries us. It completely destroys any notion of self-righteousness in our life that we might hold on to. When we compare ourselves to the law, we see very quickly we have no righteousness, that we have no stake to claim when it comes to righteousness. We just simply cannot do it. We might go through a little section of the law and say, man, I do, I do pretty good with that. But there's more sections coming. And you will not do good with those. Maybe in the future, God will allow me to preach through the Ten Commandments and really look at that more in depth. But when you really understand the meaning behind those commandments, it's, it's commandments we fail all the time. I, I can't imagine how many people you've killed driving just by hate. I mean, be honest about it. I kill multiple people daily driving just by stairs. You know, and my wife says, they can see you. You know that, right? I'm like, I don't care if they can see me. They need to see me. <clears throat> but what, what does that do? Honestly, when we see that and we realize that, I know we can laugh about that, but it just shows our utter sinfulness before a holy God. The fact that I can't even drive to the grocery store without getting angry at somebody for something as silly or as foolish as they're driving too fast or they're driving too slow or 
they cut me off or they didn't use their blinker. And how much hate can build up in my life over that. And what that shows me, knowing how to balance that off the law that God gives, which says to not hate that, right? That you are essentially killing them. To to balance myself off that, to look in the mirror at night, all that it does is show me that I have no self-righteousness whatsoever. I have nothing to hang my hat on. And again, this is the first purpose of the law, is to show us our desperate need for the Lord. We need the law so that we can understand our desperate need for Jesus. A really wise old theologian, I want to read a quote that he wrote. It says, the law with its function does contribute to justification, not because it justifies, but because it impels one to the promise of grace and it makes it sweet and desirable. Therefore, we do not abolish the law, but we show its true function and use, namely, that it is a most useful servant impelling us to Christ. For its function and use is not only to disclose the sin and wrath of God, but also to drive us to Christ. Therefore, the principal purpose of the law in theology is to make men not better, but worse. That is, it shows them their sin, so that by recognition of sin they may be humbled, frightened, and worn down, and so may long for grace and for the blessed offspring. I think a lot of times as Christians, we've taken the law and we've taken it from its first purpose. And we do what the Jewish people do. As Christians, we elevate the law and we say, look at our moral high ground here. This is who we are. This is what standard we live by. And what we've done, essentially, is we have buried ourselves as churches because the outside looks at us and they say, oh, that's a great moral standard that you never live up to. You're all hypocrites. Why would I go in there? Why would I be a part of that? And why has that happened? Because we're using the law for what it's not purposed for. Instead, our purpose for the law is to say, yeah, I can't live up to that at all. I am a liar. I am a cheat. I am a, a thief. But thanks be to God, he's forgiven me of those things. He's working in my life to try to overcome those things. I, I am better than nobody. Christians should be the ones first in line to say, I have no self-righteousness whatsoever. But it's only because of Christ who lives in me that I am righteous in his eyes. His work, not mine. And so when we look at the law, a way to think of it when I was reading, I don't remember who uh, pointed it out to quote them, but they said, the law is a kind of on-ramp to the highway of justification. It's like an an on-ramp there. It doesn't justify us. it, It doesn't save us, but it's kind of our entry point into justification because if I do not know my sin... I do not know my need to be justified. There's a lot of people walking around today when you try to talk to them about the Lord, they're going to say, well, I don't need, what do I need him for? I'm perfectly fine. You try to talk to them about sin or you try to talk to them about the law, they don't understand that. Nothing to do with it. Well, then it makes complete sense why they don't feel they need a savior. They don't even understand their sin. They don't understand the depth of their depravity and how, how short they have fallen of God. You see, something that we see here, which I think is important for us to grasp as a church, and, 
it's something I hope to never lose as a church, is God's strategy for evangelism. Because what we see laid out for us here in this little section is God's strategy to evangelize the world. God planned for us to see our sin before we ever see his grace. That's the order. We have to see our sin. We have to understand our sin. And until we do that, we're not able to see his grace because we're not able to understand his grace. That's why when we teach the kids, you know, in children's church and these different things, we, we teach them some very basic principles that we should. We, we teach them God is big, right? We teach them that God loves, but we also teach them and we need to teach them, you're not perfect. You're a sinner. You're fallen, right? We explain them these things. Have you ever hit your brother and sister? And they're all like, eh, yeah, I have. You're a sinner, right? They, they need to know that. They need to understand that because if they don't, they're never going to understand their need for grace. Well, sadly, most churches function backwards. We don't want you to hear about sin first. We want you to hear about love first. We want you to hear about the good feelings that God gives you. And so we're going to give you an environment to feel those good feelings And then we hope that God will maybe use that to give us an opportunity later down the road to tell you about your sin. But that's backwards. That's completely backwards. Now, I'm not saying we should have uh, signs on our door, and I'm not encouraging you to label your van like I see some around town that tells everybody they're going to hell tomorrow because they're a sinner. I'm not telling you to be those type of people. But what I am saying is if in your evangelism, in your evangelistic efforts, If you're not talking about people's sin, then you're not evangelizing. You might be giving out hugs and you might be giving out warm feelings, but you're not doing the work of the Savior because Jesus came to save the lost. And what a lot of people out there don't realize is that they're lost. They don't know they're lost. They don't know they're going in the wrong direction. And so one of the things that the law does for us is it says, hey, you're going in the complete wrong direction. You think you know what's best for you, but only God knows what's best for you. And this is what his law says. As I say this, I hope that things are going off in your mind about things in our society of how it's going in the exact opposite direction of what we are talking about. In a day, our day today, it is not smart to tell people you don't know what's best for you. I mean, in fact, when I was entering I think it was entering back into the United States. You know, I had a little app on my phone for a mobile passport pass so I could skip some lines. And they they make you ask answer some questions. You know, do you have more than ten thousand dollars on this? You bring them food into the country. All these different questions. No, 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 no. One of the questions: What is your gender? Male, female, other. I was like, I wanted to choose other just because I don't know what that means, and I would love to see the questions they would ask me. I don't know what this implies. Maybe they would have let me go through faster because they would have been scared or something. But even something that simple nowadays, and I don't mean to make light of it or anything like that, but we're getting to the point to where you can't tell me if I'm doing something wrong. And so it's going to be harder for us as Christians to take a stand, to be able to say, look, this is God's law. If you are not a living, living according to this law, then you are a sinner in need of a savior. 
You have no place in God's kingdom if you don't match up to this law apart from Christ. And just to be honest, we're going to hear more and more in our faith and in our walk, people saying, I want nothing to do with you then. Being called bad names. And you guys maybe already know this, but it's not cool to be a Christian anymore. It's not the normal answer. But that cannot cause us to shy away from God's plan for evangelism. People see their sin. People are guilty of their sin. Realizing their need of a Savior. Realizing that Savior has come in Jesus who loves them, who died for them, who wants to pour his grace out on them. That's what we have to share. That's what we have to do. And so we have to make sure as a church, you have to make sure in your personal evangelism that the gospel doesn't just become some cuddly and warm thing, but that it's the truth. And sometimes the truth is difficult and sometimes the truth hurts when telling people. And probably lose some friends. It'll be hard. But we must be faithful to the call that God has called us to when it comes to the gospel. When we get to verse 23 through 25, we see Paul has two more arguments here. The first one in verse 23 is he uses the image of jail, talking about being held captive. He says, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for faith, which we would afterward be revealed. So he has this imagery of being held in jail and the law that holds us captive to our sin. It holds us captive to our, our frailty. And in one sense, this is a very difficult thing for us to hear. It's a very difficult thing to live under, being held captive by that. Being held captive by sin and being destroyed by sin is a, is a hard thing. But one of the good side of this in the law, when it comes to the law, is that being held captive under the law is a, is a kind of protection because the law points us to Christ, which is our only true release, our only true source of freedom. And so when we're held under that law, maybe we're reading the law, you know, and we're seeing all these different things, what we see in Scripture is the only way to get out of jail is through Christ. One of the commentaries I was reading gave an example of Paul and how Paul was in jail, he was, he was under arrest and how it actually saved his life because people wanted to kill him. And when they were transporting Paul, they had a huge number that would go with him to keep him safe because they were saying nothing is going to happen to Paul unless we do it, right? Nobody else is going to kill him. Nobody else is going to take his life. So being in jail actually saved his life. And so when we look at the law and we look at Israel, what God had done is God gave Israel the law to be a a guard for them, a guard for them until Christ, until the seed of Abraham would come. And so it ushered them all the way to Christ. But what Paul is getting to here is he's saying, now that Christ has come, there's no need for that guard anymore. There's no need to be held in captivity. There's no need to be imprisoned any longer. We are free from that because of Christ. To drive his point home even more, He goes into verse 24 and verse 25. It says, therefore, the law was our tutor. King James Version says schoolmaster. Uh, Your version could also say guardian, potentially. It says, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, 
We are no longer under a tutor. So the second argument we see here, he's talking about a tutor, a guardian, a schoolmaster. The real word there is pedagogue, pedagogue. And what a pedagogue was is a Greek child was always put under the care of a pedagogue. This could have been a slave in the home or something along those lines. And the job of the pedagogue was to make sure that the child got to school and got brought home from school. And then within the house, the pedagogue was kind of a a moral teacher. The reason I don't like schoolmaster being used in KJV is because when the pedagogue took them to school, they didn't teach them or anything. There actually was a, a special room for pedagogues where they would hang out until school was over and then take their child back home. And so they weren't necessarily the teacher. They were seen by the child. Imagine if you had one, probably not that well. I can't wait till this guy's not by me all the time. He's always making me go to school. He's always checking my homework. He's always checking to make sure I'm doing everything right. I just want to get away from him. I just want to get out from under his thumb. Now, sometimes I'm sure a child had a good relationship with their, with their pedagogue, but this was the purpose of the pedagogue, to keep the child in line. There's pictures that you can find of pedagogues, and they're always holding a stick. This wasn't because they like sports or anything. It was to make sure the child got to school, and they would use that stick if they needed to get them there. And so this wasn't always something that was enjoyable for the child, but it was what was done back then. And Paul is alluding to this, and he's saying this is how the law functions. The law functioned as a pedagogue. It was there to keep Israel in check until the, until the days of salvation that would be found in Jesus. Oftentimes, when you read the Old Testament, you will see Israel didn't like this. They did not like the discipline that God put them through, but it was for their good. We have the privilege of being able to know history. And so we can look at these stories with Israel and we can say, stop complaining. God has this plan for your good. But we know in our lives, when we face these things, how quick we are to complain, even when it's not going to take that long maybe for us to get through it. This discipline that God would put them through was for their good until they would be freed in Christ. But regardless, though the law was needed for the good of the people, right? It was done for the good of the people. Faith has always been what saves, and we see that there. That's what, that's what Paul is getting at here, too. The, the purpose of this pedagogue wasn't to teach, wasn't to restore, wasn't to do any of this. It was just keep them in line. Just kind of keep them in line, right? Same with the law. The law's purpose wasn't to save. It wasn't to restore. It wasn't to do any of that. It was, we're going to keep them in line, help them to see their sin, point them to a Savior, and when the Savior comes he will do the rest. It will be complete in him. And so faith has always been what saves, but the law is what has kept them in check until the fulfillment came in Christ. It really reminds me of Hebrews. If you want to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, I didn't have this wrote down, but I was thinking about it up front here a minute ago. Hebrews chapter 12, when you look at verse 3 through verse 11 or even a little bit more, it talks about God's discipline. And I don't want us to think that because Christ has come, then there is no purpose anymore for discipline in our lives. 
But there is. God still disciplines us. God still trains us. God still molds us and makes us. And he does that in a lot of different ways. And, and so we need to not reject that. And so the writer of Hebrews says in verse three, he says, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not even yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. One of the things I think that we have to be careful about as Christians is not understanding the discipline that God gives us, the chastening that God puts in our life. And I, I've said this numerous times, and I, I hope to really dive into this at some point, but perseverance, the perseverance of a Christian is very vital. And when we look to the use of the law for us as Christians now, that is one of its purposes. When we look to the law, the law helps us to see the holiness of God and the law can help to mold us and then to make us to do the things that God would have for us to do. It helps us to see, don't murder, don't steal, don't be a liar, don't be a cheat. Don't covet everything around. Those aren't bad things. Those aren't things that we just throw away. It's just the purpose of it has changed. It now changes us to see that's what I need to strive to be. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, God works that in our lives so that we can do those things and that we can hopefully do those things well. But yet still in our walk with him, there will be times that are difficult. There will be times of discipline. We will face times of trials and times of struggles. And the question is, are we going to persevere in those? Now, I believe if we are truly Christians, we will persevere in those things by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I also believe, sadly, that I've seen people in my life fall away. They fall away. And I pray and I pray and I hope to God that it's just a little stumble. And I hope that they come back. I hope that it's just a stumble. But I think sometimes it's not a stumble it's they were never his. They never really were saved by his grace. And it's being proven by the playing out that they're not, they're not persevering. They're not holding on to those truths of God and they're, and they're falling away from him. I was listening to a, a podcast yesterday when I was mowing my grass and I was talking about a pastor who is very, very evangelistic. And he was evangelizing to this person over and over and over again for years and nothing was really happening. And then one day he was in his church with some people and someone came in and said, hey, so-and-so accepted the Lord. And people were all excited and they, they turned to that pastor and they said, isn't that exciting? And 
his response might uh, not be what you expected. You know what he said? He said, we'll see. We'll see. See, that's not something that's always really thought about, I think, anymore. Is we'll see. We'll see if he perseveres. We'll see if this is real in his life. We'll see if it's truthful and if it's honest, if it's real, or if it's just words. See, God has given us the law, not for no purpose. Number one, it shows us our sin. It reveals our need of a Savior. But then it also guides us and directs us after that to help us to understand our Savior more. But I do want us to close with Romans chapter 8, verse 1 through 4. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 through 4 speaks to the fact of the good news that we do not have a need for a pedagogue anymore, that we, do not, we are not held captive in jail anymore by the law. Because as I strive to be what God wants me to be, no doubt I'm going to fail. But because of the gospel, I can look and say, but I'm not held in bondage by it anymore. Yes, I want to strive to be who God wants me to be. But when God looks at me, as I've said many times through Galatians, what he sees is Christ's righteousness, not mine. Not mine. And we praise him for that. And in Romans 8, 1 through 4, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. My prayer for us as a church is that we will be faithful to not walk according to the flesh, but to walk according to the spirit to be faithful to walk according to the Spirit, which is getting very difficult in our day and age. It's getting harder and harder. You might have heard me pray for our students. I'm, I'm nervous for our students. The stuff that they are going to face is going to be, I think, bigger than the things that I ever faced and bigger than the things that you ever faced. When you went to school, I have no doubt, if you talked about your weekend with your friends, Almost all of them went to church that weekend. That probably wasn't a rare thing to hear. It's rare for our students to hear that. Church is not a part of people's lives. It's not a part of every day. And we must be bold in saying, God, I am not going to live according to the flesh because the flesh tells me to take the easy route. And the easy route is to give in. The easy route is to just join into the rhetoric, to say the things that I know I'm supposed to say, to be quiet and just kind of sit on the sideline. But what the Spirit calls us to do, the Spirit calls us, calls us to hit head on against what society is teaching, to preach what love really looks like, to preach what love really is, to share with them what true freedom really is and the only place that it can really be found and to be willing to take the consequences on that we will face. There was a purpose for me reading that Hebrews passage. The writer of Hebrews was dealing with a church who was ready to quit. They were starting to face some persecution. They were starting to face some troubles. But as I read in verse 3 and verse 4 of that little section, the writer of Hebrews says, 
You haven't even bled yet for Christ and you're already gonna quit? Are you serious? And that's when he then goes into his discipline things and I stopped, but I think it's verse 12 or something right around where I stopped. He says, so strengthen your weak knees, straighten up your arms and continue running. Stop being a wimp and man up and be the person Christ has made you to be. Believe in it, do it, live it. Man, I think that is so vital for us today. Stop whining. Stop being a baby. If your person doesn't get elected to office, stop crying about it. Stop complaining about it. The kingdom of God does not hinge on our presidency or who our mayor is or who our king is. It doesn't matter. Jesus is our king. And he, the Bible tells us he's on the throne. And he calls us to live for him and in spirit and in truth. And we have to do that. We're not weighed down by the law in this more anymore. But God has freed us to live for him each and every day. And so I hope you'll do that. Pray for me as I try to do that as well. It's hard, is it not? It's hard. That's why we don't do this alone. That's why church is so important. For us to come together, to encourage each other, to lift each other up, to keep pushing each other on, not to baby each other. You know, when Rob comes to me crying, he does every week and he's like, this is so hard, Tim. And I'm like, you know, Rob, just sit it out. No, we don't do that, right? I say, Rob, let's get back out there. Let's fight harder until they kill us. We'll keep going for the sake of the gospel because it's worth it because of what he's done for us. Let's bow together. Let's pray, all right? God, I thank you for the truths of your word. God, I thank you that we're not held by the law anymore. But God, I'm also thankful that the law still serves a purpose. And God, I pray that we wouldn't hide from that. God, help us to not shy away from sin, to let people know what sin is. But God, help us to do it, yes, in a loving manner. We don't have to beat them over the head with their sin. But God, there are ways that we can share with them lovingly that the life that they're living is only leading to destruction and that they're sinning against the holy God. And God, I pray that we would even understand that ourselves. Help us as Christians to live a life worthy of the calling that you've called us to. To remember that you have called us very clearly. It says, be holy. Yes, I'm not held down by the law anymore. I've been saved by the grace of God. I'm justified by Christ alone, but yet still, You call me to be holy. God, help me to take that serious. Help me to deal with my sin seriously, to to daily be repenting of sin and going before you and laying it at your feet, understanding that you've already forgiven me of that, but just recognizing that and trying to be better for you, Not, not for me, but for you, to honor you and what you've done in my life. And God, I pray that we wouldn't walk around and let people think that we think we're better than them or anything like that. Because God, we know that apart from Christ, we are horribly lost sinners with no hope. But it's because of you that we're saved. And so God, help us to lift up your name above ours. Help us to lift up your name before a church name. God, uh, help us to be faithful to the things that you call us to do in our lives. And God, help us to rejoice in knowing that no matter what we face on this earth, we are yours. Nobody can snatch us away. Nobody can, can, can take you from me. 
But God, you are mine and I am yours. And that is good enough. Even if the rest of the world turns its back, God, help us to faithfully go forward in a loving manner, full of grace, full of boldness, to share with our neighbors, with our family members, the truth of who you are and what you've done for us. God, help us to be faithful to that. As we leave this place, we do ask that you would watch over us. Again, God, help us to love you like we should this week. Help us to be people of worship, not just on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights, but always in our life, worshiping you with every single thing we say, with every single thing we do, our thoughts, our actions. We want to honor you, so help us to do that the best that we possibly can. We pray these things now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.